Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Chapter 4. And uh, we're going to be discussing what is known as the worthy walk. The worthy walk. A very important subject. And we'll be talking about a life that is worthy to be called the Christian life. And in 1921, in an Ohio newspaper, the Mansfield News, has the earliest recorded usage of a very familiar phrase that we all know. The quote goes like this. Although he has no gilded medals upon his bosom, Howard Herring of the North American Watch Company walks the walk and talks the talk as a hero today. The assumption is Mr. Herring performed some sort of act, and in context, a heroic act, and then he lined up with a man who spoke this way, spoke valiantly, and then acted valiantly. And we know this phrase well. Um, You might hear it said like this, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. Um, It means let your actions line up with your words, right? Now, this is clearly not a new sentiment. I found an old version as well. In Shakespeare's Richard III, written in 1594, we have this one. Fear not, my lord, we will not stand to prat. Talkers are no good doers, be assured. We come to use our hands and not our tongues. And many, many variations of this have sort of been birthed over the years. How about these? Put your money where your mouth is. Right? Or, and what does that mean to us? It means, if stop talking and bet on your actions. Right? How about this one? He's all talk, that guy. All talk. Right? He's no action. Or what about this one? He's all bark and no bite. We've heard that one. Or talk is cheap. Or all show and no go. The South has their own version. He's all hat and no cattle. The Brits have one, too. He's old mouth and no trousers. I like this one. He's all sizzle and no steak. Now, we have fun with these these idioms, but there is a serious element to this. Um, At the heart of these things is what? At the heart of what we're trying to identify when we're using phrases like this is that these people, and forgive me for being direct... These people are hypocrites. Live out what they say is a hypocrite. At the very core of integrity is that one does what he says. Am I right? But really, there's something very important, something very revealing inside that person. And the Apostle Paul is going to challenge us to look into our own lives today. And we're going to ask the question, are you walking the walk? Are you biblically walking the walk, totally biblically devoted to Christ, or are you just talking the talk? We've got a lot to talk about today, so let's read together Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to simply be looking at the first three verses, but it is packed. Um, let's read together. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called and gentleness, 
with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this is the spectacular book of Ephesians. It is a monumental work. And if you're familiar with this book, I hope you are, you would know this. Um, It is a book that is dense with both theology and practicality. And uh, the Apostle Paul is here in our section focusing on what he calls walking in a manner worthy of the calling. This is the Christian life. Nothing is more important than this. After salvation, there is nothing more important than how you are living. And we're going to break down this idea of the worthy walk into just two parts. We're going to keep it simple, courtesy of Pastor John. Verse 1, we're going to look at the call, the call, worthy walk. And then we're going to look at the characteristics of our worthy walk. So let's dive in and let's get started with the call of our worthy walk. Verse 1, it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, with which you have been called. Now in this verse, we see our focal point. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. But before we sort of dissect this phrase, we must look at what the Apostle Paul is building upon. Because he is pointing to something that must be in place for every believer to have in their heart before they can even consider the Christian life. Notice he starts with the conjunction, therefore. Therefore is what? It's pointing backwards. It's pointing to what is motivating Paul to begin what he is about to say next. And it can be understood this. Because of what I just spoke, do this. All right, let's do that. So what is he referring back to? The answer is seen in the structure of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians can be broken down into two parts. Rich theology, the foundational truth of our faith laid out so beautifully and then how to live it out, the practical element. Pastor John says it like this, doctrine and duty, doctrine and duty. And we understand that all doctrine that is given to us has a purpose. It's not just to know. It's not just to keep it in our minds. It's not to just puff up in knowledge and be happy with all that we have and say, well, we go to Grace Church and we know so much. No, it's meant to produce very specific things. And he does the same thing, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove that the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Here, Paul is urging now the Romans to also devote to a very specific way of living. And in his words, he says, that is acceptable to God. And in our language in Ephesians, would be worthy to God. And he also uses therefore. Therefore, building upon what he previously was teaching. And what are those teachings? Again, the book of Romans, dense, packed in theology. Romans chapter 1 to 3, what is Paul doing? Paul teaches on the condemnation of man. And the need for righteousness. Big topics. Roman this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
right? The image of the unbeliever. In chapters 3 through 5, we see the great doctrine of justification, where he discusses the source of our righteousness, the understanding of our undeserved imputation of righteousness. He says this in chapter 321, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, but it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. Then, of course, Romans 6, 7, and 8, where Paul expects dead and being alive in Christ, saying the familiar verse in 8, 1, Therefore, there now is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God for these truths. And then he arrives at chapter 12 which I just read, where he says, therefore, based on these truths, because of these monumental foundational understandings of what Christ has done for us, live in this way. It is meant to produce. It is just not a nice thought and something we celebrate. We live it. And he does the same in our book today, the book of Ephesians. In the first three chapters, Paul does this. Again, foundational doctrines of the Christian faith that we celebrate Let's look. Chapter 1, what does he do? He tells us this. Chapter 1, verse 5. He predestined us, election, to adoption as sons and daughters, praise God, through Jesus, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, with which he favored us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our wrongdoings, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. My goodness. My goodness, we should be swimming in these verses daily. They're so rich. We see our predestined adoption, right? And the riches of God's grace. And what does he say? He lavishes these on us. How about verse 13 of chapter 1? What is Paul doing? He says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we have our predestined adoption before the foundations of the world, and then we have our eternal or our eternal perseverance. We know that we cannot lose our salvation. It is permanent. Praise God for that, because I don't know about you, but if it was in my hands, I would drop it every day of the week. But it's not up to me, and it's not up to you. It's in the hands of Almighty God, and I'm so thankful for that. In chapter 2, what does he outline? He's still building doctrine. Chapter 2, he says in verse 1, And you were dead in your offenses and sins. You were dead. Okay. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, he made us alive in Christ Jesus. And then verse 8. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is a gift, and praise God for that. Because in and of ourselves we have nothing. We were spiritually dead, living in our sin, when the Lord saved us. And we could not achieve any sort of righteousness or redemption towards God, because dead people cannot undead themselves. It's impossible. But God gave it, undeservingly, 
As a gift, he made us alive. He gave us this life. He gave us the opportunity to come together and celebrate him and to know him. Knowing him is the greatest of honors in existence because folks out in the world, they don't know God. They're living completely alone. It's sad. It's a sad truth and a sad reality. But we have God. We know him. We can see where this is going. You can see what the Apostle Paul is doing here when he's building this foundation of theological truth. There should be welling up inside of you a response to this, right? Whether or not you've heard it a million times, these trouble inside you. And the Apostle Paul shows us what this sort of welling up, what this emotion is meant to look like. Let's go back to our verse. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore... Looking backwards, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you. Because of what the Lord has done for us, he urges. Urging is emotional. This is very passionate. Let's understand that the Apostle Paul is not sort of arbitrarily just giving us information and speaking to us just sort of generally. He's urging us. He does the same thing with the Romans. He says, I urge you. It's the Greek word parakaleo. It can be translated, I exhort you. He is coming forward over the pulpit. This is serious. He says, I beg you. I implore you. He is saying what the Lord has done for us is so significant that we are are responding in a way that is worthy. We must. We cannot see this as anything other than life changing. He told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, If anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let's take Paul's urging serious when we hear this. Let's stop and say, I must listen to this man. He is urging. Remember one one thing. Paul, interestingly enough, identifies himself as a prisoner He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Well, currently he's writing this in a Roman prison. Now, what's significant about that? In fact, he's already mentioned it. Here he is mentioning it again. Paul keeps mentioning that he's a prisoner. Why? Because before he goes into instructing our lives, he reminds us that passion and in his pleas to them, he himself is living out this life to the point of being put in prison. He's talking the talk. And he's definitely walking the walk. Now let's look into this worthy walk. Now that we understand what the Apostle Paul has built upon and the energy and passion of urging that's behind it, let's look at this walk and let's build this and let's compare it with our own walk and let us grow. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Walk is simple. Walk is a metaphor for your actions, right? It's your lifestyle. It's your conduct. It's what you say and what you do every single day. That's your walk. We understand this sentiment. This isn't sort of new to us. What do we say when we're talking about marriage? I can't wait to walk through life with you. What are we talking about? We're talking about doing life together, living it out. That's what walk means. And it's a very familiar topic in Scripture and in Ephesians. Ephesians 5.2, Paul says, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. Walk in love, just as Christ. It's pointing out that this walk is specific. It's not arbitrary. 
It's not random, and it's not up to you and me. Just as Christ did, walk in love. Ephesians 5.8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Specifics in terms of your walk. It's not an option how you walk. It is meant to be very specific. How about Ephesians 5.15? Look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but wise. Okay. More specifics. The Christian specific. And you can look up the word walk, and there's plenty of other references to walking, walking, walking. Christianity is not meant to be just spoken, not meant to be held inside. It's meant to be walked out. And Paul is instructing us to walk and live our life in a certain manner, right? It must be a specific way. Manner means a certain way, but a certain way that is given specifically by God. Again, this is not up to us. And this way must be, as Paul says, worthy. It must be worthy. Begging us to ask the question, all right, am I walking in a way? Is my life worthy? Your actions, your lifestyle, your conduct, your walk must be worthy. Now, the Greek word for worthy is axios. It's where we get the word axis. And it's talking about balancing. It's a, it's a scale that's balancing, right? And what does a scale balance on? It balances on its center point, which is the axis. And Paul is telling our lives must balance out or be equal to something. It must be equal. We can't be living a life like this. Can't be living a life like this. It must be equal, right? It's not an option. Our life must be balanced. It must be equal to something, So what is this thing that it should be equal to, which ultimately makes our walk and our life worthy? What is this thing that only when we are living equal to, our lives are worthy? This is where it gets good. Our verse says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. The worthiness of your walk and my walk comes from both your calling and your call. Your calling Together, these are emphasizing and referring to God's divine and sovereign election. Paul is saying, for your life and walk to be worthy, it must be equal to the divine work of salvation. And not only salvation, but election. Romans 8.30 says this, And these whom he predestined, election, he also called, election, And these whom he called, election, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Election is the foundational point of our salvation. And the Apostle Paul emphasizes having a deep grasp of this significance of our calling when he says this in Ephesians chapter 118. He says, I pray that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance and saints? Now, an interesting note about this is that he's believing, he's talking to believers. And he's saying, I hope that your eyes would be enlightened so that you would know what the hope is. Well, they're believers, they already know. But what he's talking about is knowing it deeper, having a deeper, truly growing, deeper understanding of this calling calling it the riches of God's glory. 
He says, the hope of the calling, why? Because without this calling, there is no salvation. And without salvation, there's no hope. So then why? Why is this element of salvation so important? Talking about election. Why is this so important that our understanding of it will influence specifically whether or not you and me are living worthily every day for the Lord? Why? It's one word. Gratitude. Gratitude. Now, this is where we start pulling from the doctrine of total depravity. To see the true value of election. And you're going to see how this all plays together. Building the foundation of our walk. Paul tells us in chapter 2 this. We already saw it. And you were dead in your offenses and sins. We were dead. We know that. Before salvation, we were dead. Right? And as I mentioned before, you can't undead yourself. Once you're dead, you're dead. Verse 4 says, But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he had, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, he made us alive together in Christ. Romans 6.20 describes it like this, for when, you were, for when you were slaves of sin. Now, people talk a lot about free will. We'd say, sure, free, free will exists influenced by something. Before you're saved, you're a slave to your sins. So your free will is in bondage to that sin. So enjoy your free will as an unbeliever. Your free will will always lead you down the sin. It will always lead you away from the Lord. It is impossible to go the other direction. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us, But a natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. When you're dead, before you're a believer... In your sin, you do not even have the ability to understand the scriptures. You can read it all the time. You hear unbelievers say, I've read the Bible. Oh, I've read it cover to cover. Just so indifferent. But he can't understand it. Might as well be in tongues. Might as well be written in gibberish. He can't understand it because it's spiritually discerned. Only when we are given life, only when God steps in and gives via the Holy Spirit, do we have even the potential to open up the book and understand the depths of this. This is why when Paul is talking about us understanding this deeper, he's talking to believers. They have the ability to understand this deeper, and we must. We have a responsibility to not just understand the scriptures, but to understand it deeper as it's going to directly affect our walk. We were spiritually dead, but the Lord graciously saved us. We had no chance in and of ourselves to be saved. We cannot emphasize this enough. I could say it over and over and over. God did the work. He gets all the credit. We were slaves, and we were gladly rebelling against our creator. Scripture says they love their sin, yet he saved us. And what did he save us from? An eternity in hell. It's just call spade a spade. An eternity in hell we've been saved from, which we all deserve, by the way. This is weighty. This is heavy. This is the foundation that's going to motivate someone for something. So you're starting to see why election, him saying this calling, is the foundation for our walk. This is not something that we put on the shelf in terms of our theological understanding. I've read the election book. No, it's give me the election book, and I'm going to hold on to this thing because it's that important. And it's not even that he just saved us. It's deeper. It's that he sacrificed his son to do so. 
Let us not forget. Yes, he saved us. We're happy. But what did he do in order to save us? He sacrificed himself. God came down in human form to sacrifice himself. Anybody sacrificed their self for anybody lately? No. What? This is the God of the universe. Came off his throne for his rebellious creation to sacrifice his life for them. He came down and he allowed his own creation to kill him. It's heavy. There's a huge price that was paid for our salvation. Massive. Our gratitude should be bursting at the seams when we hear these things. The love of Christ should be swelling up inside of us when we hear these things. And our walk should reflect and be worthy of what this is. It should be worthy of what God has done. It should be worthy of the image of Christ on the cross. We shouldn't be indifferent about that. We shouldn't get used to it. It should always matter to us the cost of our salvation. It is massive. There is nothing greater for us that could be done than for what the Lord did. How dare we call ourselves Christians if truly striving to be like Christ and living every day with this gratitude. Psalm 95, 1 through 5 says this. Come, let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before his presence with song of thanksgiving. Thanking him for our salvation, that he is a God who saves. This is the underpinning of our faith. This is the underpinning of our motivation. Take that as we build upon it the specifics of the, of the Christian walk. And let's move in that direction. Let's move on to see our second point, the characteristics of this walk. Verse 2 says, With all humility and gentleness, with being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We might begin to wonder and say, okay, all of that you said was very nice and very motivating, but how do I do this? How do I live this life? What's worthy? Well, fortunately, we have those specifics, and we need to understand, again, that it is specific. It is not up to us. We must look to the scriptures, and we must say yes and okay. Paul gives us these. And before we go into each individual word, it's also important that we understand the purpose of these characteristics. He says in verse 3, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul gives us the characteristics of what the worthy walk is meant to produce. Now, obviously, it's meant to produce the glory of God. Amen? But it's also meant to produce and sustain unity. Unity within the body of believers. Now, unity is one of the themes in the book of Ephesians. It's all over the place. And... uh, Paul gives us his beautiful description of unity in chapter 2. I'm going to read you a few verses. You can turn there. We're starting in verse 11, but it's going to give us this understanding of what Paul wants, what God is striving for in terms of us being saved, influencing our understanding of why we need to do these things for unity. Verse 11 says, Therefore, remember that previously you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, 
excluded from the people of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, previously far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing sin I'm sorry, by abolishing in his flesh the hostility, which is the law, composed of commandments expressed in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two one new person, in this way establishing peace, and that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the hostility And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the father. So no longer are strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fit together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built together into the dwelling of God in the spirit. This is a beautiful image that the Lord did not just come to save individuals. We're not lone rangers. We get to go and sort of take our gift and take it and run. See you later. No, the Lord is building a temple. He is building a people right? The promise was given to Abraham, many nations. Excuse me. The intention is for us to be together. The intention is for it to be a group. And the characteristics here in our verse are designed to sustain this unity. And it's going to make complete sense when we see how these things would really work towards them. So let's go through them and uh, we will see how they take part in keeping unity and peace. Verse number two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Here is where we move from the foundational doctrines to the, to the duty, from the doctrine to the duty. Our first word is humility. Humility. Why does Paul start here? Why does Paul start with humility? Well, for one, A person cannot be saved without humility. You can't be saved without humility. Why? A definition of humility is this. It's thinking lowly of oneself. This is clearly the highly or boasting. Well, is this low self-esteem? Is this negative thinking? Both of which our culture would push up against, right? We need to encourage everyone and everybody needs a trophy. We all need to feel good about ourselves. We all need to boast. We all need to reach success. We all need to be someone. We all need to prove our point. We all need to compete with each other. We all need to be the best. In order to be the best, you need to think well of yourself. Think positively. Don't live in negativity. No. No. That's not what this humility is. This is simply being honest. It's being honest with who you really are. We've already seen so much of that, right? We cannot be saved without humility, without the humility to see our sinfulness and our need for a savior. You can't understand the good news until you understand the bad news. 
right? And you need humility to understand the bad news. Why? Because the bad news us. Bad news is you and me. Without humility, your pride will keep you back from seeing that. Only when we cry out to the Lord for salvation and for mercy are we saved. Why would we shy away from this? Why would we shy away from not just the humility needed unto salvation initially, which by the way, the Lord gives us, but the humility to then proceed through our worthy walk in this humility. Listen, the more honest we are about who we are on a daily basis, the more our need for forgiveness and the more the value of the gift of salvation is to us. The more we understand the need, the more we, we love the solution. The more we see the truth about who we are, the more we are grateful to the Lord for what we see every day, how unworthy we are. And by extension, the more we desire to live a life that is worthy of that. See, when you don't think highly of yourself, You don't protect yourself because you don't think you deserve anything. When you think you deserve something, what do we do? We do everything we can to achieve that thing. And then we get angry when we don't get it. And we start to be tempted to do whatever it is we need to do to get it. And that's when you start crossing lines and sinning and all of those things. This is not unity. Unity cannot function when people are not humble. What does Philippians 2.3 says? Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourself. How are you going to consider someone else more important than yourself if you're only focused on yourself? That is not humility. Our culture is obsessed with self. Self-help, self-will, self-this, a magazine named self. As Christians, a part of our worthy walk is to identify, reject, and pursue the opposite of the world. We have to. We have to understand that there are elements that exist in this world that are directly working against what we're trying to do. We have to. If we are not on guard in terms of what is out there, we are not being humble. Why? Because you are not being humble honest about how the world affects you. Maybe you're not aware of it. Maybe you're not that deep yet. Maybe you're not conscious about how you are influenced. We are influenced. We are clay. We will get molded by whatever comes our way, which is in the book, which is why we have to keep away the false thinking of the world. We have to protect our humility. What about gentleness? What's gentleness? Well, simply put, gentleness is the opposite of roughness, aggressiveness, things like that, right? But there's a big distinction that needs to be made so we understand gentleness from a biblical perspective. Oftentimes, we'll think of gentleness as weakness. Gentleness is not weakness, okay? This is the picture. We take the picture of a a small rabbit, right? Inherent in this small habit is Gentleness, we'd call it a gentle creature, right? Simply suit due to its size and demeanor. We put it in cages, we take them home, we let them run around the backyard, we give them lettuce, they're super cute. Call it a bunny, it gets even more gentle. Not biblical gentleness. 
gentleness doesn't require some inherent weakness. Rather, think of it like this. Think about a lion, the king of the jungle, with its inherent power and ability. Now picture, the picture of gentleness is this lion choosing to restrain himself. He's choosing to restrain his inherent power and ability. Well, you're thinking, okay, well, a bunny is a bunny and he has to be gentle. A lion doesn't have to do that. All right, fine. What about Jesus Christ? Let me read you something. Philippians 2, 5 through 7 says this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Jesus Christ. Okay, we're going to look at an attitude that was in Jesus Christ. Pay close attention here. Who, as he already existed in the form of God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men. Existing in the form of God means what? He's God. All-powerful. Infinite. Creator of everything that exists. Sustainer of everything that exists. There is no greater power. There is no greater image of greatness and power. Yet he chose to be gentle. He chose to be gentle. He made a decision to be gentle and come down as a servant. Gentleness is a choice. This is the image of biblical gentleness. It is a choice. Think of the fruit of the spirit. Both humility and gentleness are on this list, right? But what's the last one? And we know self-control. Self-control. Biblical gentleness is a choice. Now, where does this gentleness lack the most? Where do we see this lack of self-control the most in our gentleness? In our speech. Proverbs 15.1 tells us, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. When we are not, when are we not speaking gently? When are we not speaking gently? When we're mad about something. And when are we mad about something? We're mad about something when we're not getting what we want. Humility, gone. It's out the window. I'm mad about not getting what I want because I think that I deserve something. Well, don't we know what we deserve? For who we truly are as sinners? Penalty of sin is death. We deserve nothing. But in our pride and our lack of humility, we think we deserve it. When we don't get it, we get angry and we are not being gentle in our speech. Happens all the time. Listen to your speech. Because when you are not being gentle, I want you to ask yourself a question. Ask yourself what you selfishly are not getting in that moment and then acknowledge that you are taking it out on another person. Ask yourself that when you're not being gentle. Titus 3.2 says, To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and show perfect courtesy towards all people. Right? To avoid quarreling. To avoid quarreling is to maintain unity. To do that, stop talking poorly about people. Give the, the courtesy. What does that mean to give courtesy? Courtesy means that if you could say something poor about somebody, you choose not to. 
Self-control, there it is again. You choose to be gentle. You choose not to say that negative thing. You choose not to say that poor thing, even if it's right. Why? Because it's not gentle and it's not kind. You give them the courtesy of saying the nicer thing. We have to make this a habit. This is how we maintain unity. What else does Paul say? Moving on in our verse. With patience, bearing with one another in, in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, now we generally understand and know what patience means, right? And all of those things that you could think of will apply to this word. But one commenter puts it like this, in context of unity and people working together. He says, quote, for the believer, patience is that cautious endurance that does not abandon hope. The cautious endurance that does not abandon hope. Interesting. So he's tying patience to hope. All right, let's build on this for a second. Why can we be patient? Because we have the ultimate hope that our great God is in control. We submit to his sovereign will to ordain whatever situation we are in. This is why understanding the sovereignty of God is so crucial. It's because he is in control of every single thing. And when you grasp that, it forces you to think and respond a certain way. When we lose patience, it's because we are selfishly not happy with the situation. We say to God this, God, doing. I don't like the choices you have made. I don't like what you have designed here in this moment. And I'm going to act out in some way to express my dissatisfaction to everybody. My dissatisfaction with what God chooses. What? Oh my goodness. Pride like crazy. It's an ugly thought. It's an absurd thought. Would we ever do that in the presence of God? We do it every day. Why? Because God is everywhere. We can't leave the presence of God. We must rest in our Father's control. We must rest that our Father is a good God and a loving God and a gracious God and a just God. And that everything He chooses is perfect, not what we think. Everything He designs is perfect. And what is He doing through those situations? Even when it's difficult to see, even when, the, when there's trials and persecution, the Lord is working out His glory sanctifying us. He's teaching us. We need those things. And when God's glory is important to us, and we understand that even difficulty produces in us what we need to glorify him, we begin to see those things as beneficial. Count it all joy when you meet various trials. Consider it a joyful thing. Going through a trial, joy, joyful day, trials. Yeah. Yes. Why? Because what does the scripture say? It's producing in us endurance. It's perfecting in us. It's maturing us. And we need those things to be like Christ. And when we are like Christ, we give God glory. And how about you? But I want to give my God glory. Why? Because everything Paul has already stated in the doctrine is living in my heart. I love those things. My gratitude is swelling out of me. I want to give him glory. And Lord, to produce that in me, bring it on. Why? Because I know I need it. Because I'm humble enough to know how rotten I am. I'm a sinner. My goodness. I mean, how many times I've said sorry for saying sorry again. It's terrible. But I'm honest enough, 
Lord has, is graciously allowing me to see this so that I can continue to come to him and I can continue to see the value of my salvation and my gratitude continues to grow. I want to live in that. I want to give him glory. Lord, do what you need in my life because I want you to be glorified. And when situations are bad and when situations are tough and when situations are whatever, we can trust that he's doing that. We have to accept the word of God. Dare we put down for one minute the fact that we have the greatest gift of salvation. It is so big. And on top of that, we were chosen through election when we didn't have to be. He didn't have to choose any of us. Did not have to. Could have left us all in the world to die in our sins and get and it would have been perfectly fine. No reason for choosing any of us. But he did. Thank God. Thank goodness that gift is so valuable. Let that sink in. You did not have to be chosen. Dare we put down for one minute the fact that we have the greatest gift in all of existence, the gift of salvation. Dare we put that down for a minute to show our dissatisfaction with a momentary fleeting situation? No, Lord, help us. It says, bearing with one another in love, Paul says. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another is very closely tied with patience, obviously. We all have weaknesses and struggles, unique to each other, but we all share all the same sins. We all sin exactly the same. We are all exactly the same. We are all made of the same dust, have the same sins, the same grow up differently. Yes, of course. Do they have different consequences in our life? Yes, of course. But we are the same, which should give us the patience to bear with each other, right? We are called to endure, to tolerate, to support each other. This is bearing with one, each other, one another. It takes humility to say, listen, I can bear with you because I need the same thing. Really? I'm going to get upset with you for your weaknesses and then what? Forget my own? But then when it comes time for me to need bearing, I'm going to graciously take all the bearing. Please bear with me. I'm such a sinner. We can't be hypocrites. And then Paul says, bear in love. Bear in love. Bearing in love means this. This isn't a gritting of your teeth. Okay. <laughs> can put up with this person. Just smile. Just keep smiling. Walking around church like this. Fake smile. Just barren. No. There's not a reluctance. There's not a hesitancy. This is not the type that's glad to do so because it shares with this person the thing that I have. We are together in on this. We are family. We've been adopted together. We were in the same orphanage. We grew up together in the same orphanage of sin. And the Lord came opened those doors and took every single kid, all of us. Praise God, we are in this together. I will bear with you. You bear with me. We must, we must, we must be glad to do so. And when we love and we have affection for each other, it produces more bearing and more tolerance. Now, this picture that we're building is beautiful, right? We need to be waking up every morning with the goal of becoming more like this. This should be the dream. This should be our conscious goal every day. What do you mean, man? I'm busy. I can't be thinking about this all day. Really? Really? You're going to put down all of this for your busy life? No. We must be living in this. Because living in this, we don't have a chance to walk in it worthily. Worthily is consistent. Worthily is consistent. Consistency is the key. We never stop doing this. This should be our goal. 
We should be looking up to this in the morning. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you, Lord, for salvation. Thank you for choosing me. Give me the strength to serve you and honor you. Help me to love others. Father, I want to walk in a way that is worthy. And then as we go through our day, when we are living consciously in this sort of thing, we can ask these questions to ourselves. Am I doing that now? And when we're living in humility and we're sensitive to this, we can spot it. When you're in the car and you get angry, you should be very aware of it. It's going to happen because you're a sinner. Sin is happening. This is not suggesting that you're going to stop being a sinner. This is suggesting that you're going to respond to your sin like a Christian. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that we respond to our sin. We hate our sin because it dishonors our God. Paul says, being diligent, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. All this to keep the unity of the spirit. Of the spirit is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the driving force behind all of this. All that I have just explained to you is impossible for you to do in and of yourself. Just like the unbeliever cannot understand Scripture. Well, once the believer is saved and he can understand Scripture, it's because why? The Holy Spirit is now in our lives giving us the ability to respond. Giving us the ability to see this and say, I can do this. Can't say I can. I'm too weak. I can't do it. You don't know. You don't know what kind of sinner I can't do it. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And you must. It's not an option. The Holy Spirit is the driving force behind our salvation. He opens our eyes to the truth of our sin. He gives us the ability to repent, something that we all share. Unity. Let us celebrate that we have this spirit. This ties us together as a family. We've all received the sin because we have the same need. And we need to celebrate this in unity of the spirit that bonds us together. To close this section, let's ask, why is this unity so important to God? Clearly, we saw the imagery of him building a building, right? We are, we are formed together to honor the Lord together. He is the cornerstone. That image is the cornerstone of a building. He's not the cornerstone of my heel, me personally, individually. He's the cornerstone of the building that we corporately are together. This is why we fought so hard during this whole pandemic to keep our church open because it's not an option. It's so important, not just because Hebrews 10 tells us, but because we are so important as the body. It's so important to God. Ephesians 3, 9 through 12 says this. Ephesians 3, 9 through 12 says this. Starting 10, actually. So that the multifaceted of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence access through him in faith. What is he talking about here? Through the church, through us, what we have, the rulers and authorities, he's talking about angels, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, right? We are not in the heavenly places here. We're talking about angels, both fallen and normal and, and, sa- and not saved angels, but, but redeemed angels, not redeemed angels because they were never unredeemed. Normal angels and, and fallen angels, okay? <laughs> we as the church are designed to put on display to them in the heavenly realm, the wisdom of God. What? Our purpose as the body of Christ is that the good and bad get to look down from the heavens and see God's glory. See people who are once dead, now alive, striving in a worthy walk to love him and to live for him. That's massive. What an amazing picture of what we are. This is not an individual thing where I'm just going to struggle. We are a part of something much, much bigger. We must see that. 
And one final thing. I know it's getting late. We've got to get to our seats. Hopefully you have one saved. If not, sorry. One final verse. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Okay? Revelation 19, 6 through 9. It says this. Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Why? For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are in the supper of the lamb. And he added these words, the true words. These are the true words of God. Let us understand that we are the bride of Christ. We are not individuals. We are very purposefully selected by God to become the bride of Christ, a gift that God is giving to Jesus Christ. That is a part of who we are. This is huge. This unity is huge. We must begin to flourish like this down here because when it's in Revelation 19 time, we will be at the feast with God as the bride, celebrating together our salvation with Christ. That's magnificence. See your identity in this. As you pursue walking in your life daily in a way that's worthy, let us commit to truly walking the worthy walk. The walk is a walk that is worthy to be called a Christian or a person who represents Jesus Christ. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this monumental truth. Lord, that walking a certain way in our lives must be worthy. It must be worthy. Lord, let these truths of who we are as the bride fill us with a desire to bring you glory with our lives. Let the truth that you have selected us when you did not need to motivate us with such gratitude that we drive towards you, that we strive towards these things because these are the things you want us to have. Thank you for your graciousness with us. Thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you that you are all of these things towards us and we need them. Oh, how we need them. Let us honor you with our lives, Father. Give us the ability. Be with these saints and help them to do this so that you might be glorified in their worthy walk. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.